It's been my honor to serve in this church for a long time. And for 19 years of those time, Dr. Jim Bankston was the minister here. And now he's Minister Emeritus. And I am really pleased to call Jim my friend. And um, not only that, he's been an advocate. Because during the time that I took off from teaching mind and spirit and then discerned that I was a teacher and wanted to teach, it was over a long series of conversations with Dr. Bankston that I got clarity about that and said I wanted to teach, and Jim made this happen. So I used to say to people, if you like ordinary life, thank Jim Bankston. If there's something about it you don't like, tell me, <laughs> and we'll, we'll make it work. Um, because I'm preaching in both the first and the, I'll never get over saying first and third. We used to have three services. You think we ever will again? Maybe. Maybe. Anyway, uh, since I'm preaching both services today, I asked Dr. Bankston if he would come, and he is going to talk us about theological foundations in Genesis. Jim, thank you, and welcome him, please. Well, it's so good to be with you today. Um, Always a great opportunity to teach this class. Bill is so remarkable. Um, he just does a great job every Sunday. Most of the time during the year, I'm teaching another class during the regular nine months, and I enjoy that class. But during the summer, when we take off from the uh, uh, class that, that I teach, the Journeys class, I attend here as often as I can, and uh, just always enjoy the class, enjoy each of you. So it's good to, good to be with you today. And I might say, that, as Bill mentioned, uh, he is preaching today uh, across the plaza there in the sanctuary. And if you really miss not hearing Bill today, you may miss him more after my lesson. You still have time to get across there and hear uh, and participate in worship. Uh, it, it would be a great experience. The music and the liturgy and Bill's sermon today would uh, be an edification for you. So I'll invite you to do that, even if perhaps you don't do that every Sunday. You might have a good excuse to, to do it today, and we'll get you out of here in time for you to have uh, the opportunity to do that if you, if you so choose. Uh, Wayne called me about uh, two days before I was leaving to go to Colorado for 11 days uh, to do a lesson here this morning. And I did not have time to get him much material. I hadn't even thought about what I might do when I left to go to Colorado. I got back at midnight Friday night. And uh, so we have not... Uh, I, I sent him a few things. It didn't make the translation from me to Wayne to Tim back there to... You don't have much to look at on the screen today. Uh, so uh, you're just uh, going to have to do with uh, my words today. And I, I do have some quotes that I'm going to share. So I, I'm hopeful that uh, maybe you can grasp them even if I don't have them recorded for you on the screen. So uh, what I thought I would do today is uh, help you work on your personal theology. That is to say, what you believe about who God is. I know this is a pretty constant theme that uh, Bill uses also. Uh, and I'll just take a little different uh, uh, direction, uh, very much in keeping and uh, continuation of what he does. But I'm going to use the first 11 chapters of Genesis today 
to help you formulate your own personal theology based upon what the biblical message is from those first 11 chapters of Genesis. Theology is what you believe about God, about what you believe about hum humanity, human nature, and how all of that is interrelated, how God relates to us, how we relate to each other, and the give and take of life. And that is what your theology is. So I want to help you try to understand your theology. And we will base it, uh, base it on the, uh, the Scripture. We are sometimes referred to as a people of the book. The book is the Bible. Uh, it is uh, the way that we begin to understand all those things about what we believe, about who God is, about who we are, and how all of that is connected in a very complicated and often difficult life. It's difficult for thus, those of us in this room. Think how more difficult it is for people in other circumstances uh, in our city and around the world. So trying to understand who God is and how God is active in our lives is not an easy task. In fact, it is an ongoing, lifelong task of how we understand that process happening. But we begin by understanding what the Bible says about that and then how we understand what that means. So, uh, I am uh, going to refer to the, uh, the words in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. I want to remind you, first of all, that uh, the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament... By, is divided by the Jews a little differently than we do it. It's the same 39 books, but they simply divide it into what is called law and prophets and writings. It's easy to remember. It makes more sense. I really prefer the way they do it. It's in a little different order than we have it. The law is the first five books of the Bible. The prophets, interestingly enough, uh, includes the uh, historical books of uh, uh, Samuel and, and uh, Kings, and also then the prophets. And then everything that's not law or prophets is simply referred to as the writings, everything else. Psalms, Proverbs, Ruth, etc. A lot of other things that are part of the Bible. So the what sets the stage for everything that is to follow in the Bible is the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Now, I call it the first 11 chapters because that is the prehistory. That leads us to Abraham. You get to Abraham in the 12th chapter of Genesis in some connection with a historical person. Everything in those first 11 chapters is not to be understood as history. It's to be understood as theology. So it's about creation. It's about Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the flood, the Tower of Babel. Those are the stories in the first 11 chapters. And they are about the theological foundation of our faith that is then uh, continued in the rest of the Bible. So that's, that's what we'll look at today. Uh, I, I have a working definition of the Bible. Some of you are here who attend the Journeys class, and you will be familiar uh, with uh, my definition. It's not one I've read anywhere. It's just one I've come to in the last couple of years. Uh, in a, on a better day with more time and more communication, I'd have had this on the screen. But this is my working definition of the Bible. The Bible is the written account of, Ju of the Judeo-Christian faith communities, 2,000-year experience with God, 
and with people inside and outside of that faith tradition. So it's about a continuation of a people of faith and their experience of who God is in relationship to the people who were like them and in relationship to the people who were not like them. So it's a fairly good working definition of the Bible. And uh, that's what we'll kind of go with today as our definition that we follow. Now, uh, the first 11 uh, chapters of Genesis uh, are about complex themes. They have a complex uh, written background. And it has been shaped over the years by different people, which I think only adds to the, to the wisdom of the material that you find there. Across the years, this material has been shaped and rewritten and written again until we get to the final form that we have it in our Bible today. And it is an ex a, a response to an experienced condition in life. So it, it makes it an experiential statement about uh, our theological understandings. Remember, uh, the faith community, true both of the Old Testament, as we call it, and the New Testament, created the Bible, not the other way around. Uh, the faith community existed first, and then only much later came to write about that experience. Uh, if you date Abraham, you would go all the way back to about 1,800 years before Christ. The earliest written rudimentary forms of the Old Testament don't appear until after 1,000, some in the 900s. Uh, so it's a lot of years there that much of the material that we'll look at today existed in oral form, being reshaped, and everything else. Same is true of the New Testament. Uh, Jesus lived and died and resurrected and did all the things that He did. It was only written about after the fact. So it's the faith community that has created the Bible, uh, shaped by experience. And I, I think that's significant to, to keep in mind. So, uh, Genesis 1 through 11. I have a, a quote here from uh, Walter Brueggemann. Some of you may be familiar with Brueggemann. He's a, my favorite Old Testament theologian. Uh, this book, uh, this quote is from the book, An Introduction to the Old Testament, The Canon and Christian Imagination, he calls it. So if you're interested in his book, Brueggemann, you could find uh, on Google, and uh, this book would be helpful to you, I think. <clears throat> this is what he says. The materials in Genesis 1 through 11 constitute an especially rich theological and, and literary resource in the Old Testament. In the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, is the beginning of the book, to the paradise lost of the Eden story in chapters 2 and 3, to the tragedy of the first murder in chapter 4, to the shocking destruction by flood in chapters 6 to 9, to the doomed heights of humanity's ingenuity in the Tower of Babel story in chapter 11, this opening section of Genesis is filled with some of the most memorable, larger-than-life biblical stories. The talking snake uh, and uh, other such stories are memorable and larger-than-life. The worldwide destruction, the 900-year-old ancestors, the towers reaching to the heavens, 
represent a world that would have been no less hard to understand for ancients as it is for moderns. That is to say, you're not supposed to take those stories literally. You're supposed to take them theologically. And that's what I want to look at today, the theology that is in those stories in Genesis 1 through 11. And this is what he says, Brueggemann again, they function to frame the more concrete historical materials of the Old Testament in a cosmic perspective. And in some, they constitute a brief theological history of the world. As such, they provide the complex, problematic environment in which Israel's faith and life are to be understood. Now, that's what Bergman says. To unpack that just a little bit, I would just simply say to you, these first 11 chapters, including those major stories that are there, set the theological foundation for what follows in the rest of the Bible. And it's a good place for us to begin to think about how we understand our own theology. So, here we go. Uh, you know the stories of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Genesis 1 and 2 uh, is about uh, beginnings. We call it the creation stories. Two different stories, two different resources shaped across the years. And uh, it basically, in the first story, is the six-day creation, as you're familiar with, and God rested on the seventh day. Uh, a sense of order about creation. Uh, I've uh, been in Colorado the last 12 days, and uh, my dogs, we uh, left them with the border, and they don't like that very much. And so we picked them up just yesterday and brought them home. And my routine every morning, if I'm not getting up early to play golf or something like that, uh, every morning I get up and one of the first things I do is put my dogs in a harness and walk them for about 30 minutes around in our neighborhood. That's our routine every morning. The dogs know it. The dogs had not done that for 12 days. When, they, uh, when I got them up this morning, they started barking and barking and barking. They know the routine. They know the order. They knew I was supposed to take them uh, for a walk this morning. I had to try to explain to them that wasn't going to happen today. <laughs> it would happen tomorrow, and we would reinstitute the order that was so important to their lives. So one of the things that you find in Genesis chapter 1 is some kind of assurance in order that God spoke to the chaos and brought some order out of it. Didn't eliminate all the chaos, but there are, there are some things that are dependable in life uh, and it creates a sense of order about uh, how we try to interact with each other. Genesis 1. Genesis 2 then is that story of God scooping up the mud from the earth and making a human being, and at the end of which he makes then the woman and uh, tells them to uh, interact uh, with each other and with the world in which God has created. Uh, and so in, in the stories that follow, what you will find is a pattern. Now, I'm going to go over that pattern with you in each of the stories that becomes the theology of Genesis 1 through 11 and in effect of the, the entire Bible. Here's the pattern, uh, and, and this will begin to reflect your theology because I'm going to give you some choices of words to use. So 
The first step in the pattern you could call commandment. You could call it law. Uh, you could call it guideline. It sounds a little wimpy, doesn't it, to call it a guideline. Uh, you could call it a boundary. And this is set by God. That is to say, there are boundaries in life that if you cross them, there will be consequences. So you pick your word. Commandment, law, boundary, guideline, whatever word you want to use, there's something there that defines limitations of who we are as human beings. We do have limitations. We don't live forever. We don't know everything. We're not perfect human beings. We make mistakes. All that defines who we are as human beings is pretty, it's not predetermined, but it's understood to be in that reference to that first step in the process of, I'm going to call them boundaries. That's the word I like of the choices I gave you. You can call, call them whatever you would like. The second step in the pattern in these stories uh, is uh, the crossing of the boundaries. You could call it sin. It's a good word. We use that word in the church a lot. Uh, you could call it brokenness. You could call it transgression. Any word you want to... Again, what fits your theology? You like the word sin? Pick that word. You, you like the word law or commandment? Sin breaks that law? Go with that. If you like the word boundary or guideline, a little more wimpy, then maybe you would like the word just transgression, the crossing of boundaries. Uh, so two steps. Uh, a given, that is a line you shouldn't cross, a law, guideline, a boundary, uh, and then the, uh, the transgression that follows. We tend to be people who break those boundaries and cross the lines. I'm going to use the word transgression. The third step in the biblical process in those first 11 chapters of Genesis is consequences. You can't get away from consequences. Uh, now, a harder word would be judgment. You know, if, if you're so inclined theologically and if you've gone with commandment and law and sin, maybe the next word you use in that theological construct is judgment. But I didn't go with that one. <laughs> I went with, uh, you know, uh, boundary and transgression. And so I'm going to go with consequences or uh, the... Uh, you could go with punishment also. You know, punishment, that's even a heavier word than judgment in some sense. I'm going to go uh, with a, a different kind of word that is consequences. So I'm going to go with uh, boundaries, uh, transgressions, and consequences. The first three steps in the theological process in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Now what's the last word and the last uh, step in uh, in that theological construct. I call it grace. Uh, you could call it forgiveness. You could call it restoration. In fact, uh, Brueggemann in his book uh, understands uh, a, a two-step process in what I'm calling a four-step process. He goes with the words judgment and renewal. Judgment and renewal. Uh, I'm following this four-step process and I'm calling that last step in the theological understanding of who God is and who we are in the process to be grace. So here's what I'm going with. I'm going with the boundaries, 
I'm going with uh, transgression, I'm going with consequences, and I'm going with grace. Now, let me show you how each of those plays out in the stories of Genesis, uh, the early stories. You remember that in the second chapter of Genesis, uh, the human beings have been created, and what is the limiting factor, what is the boundary that God says to the human beings that uh, God has created to inhabit the earth. You can do anything you want to do, except, what's the word, what's, what can you not do? You can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What a, what a wonderful, what a wonderful understanding that is. How deep is that? What is that about? What does that say? I think it's the ancient Hebrew people trying to understand that, you know, there are limits in life. There are things that we cannot do, things that we should not do. And if we do, there will be consequences. So uh, that is set forward as that first boundary in the story of Adam and Eve. Uh, the, in the second pattern of the crossing of the boundaries, what do they do? They eat the fruit. They eat. You know, it's a simple story, uh, not to be taken literally now, but metaphorically and theologically about the process of how life unfolds. So they eat the fruit, uh, do what they're not supposed to do, and what are the consequences for doing what for crossing that boundary? Uh, remember some of the consequences. Yeah, man has to work, woman has to have pain in childbirth. But before that, uh, they feel alienated, alone, and afraid. And Adam is hiding naked in the bushes, so maybe God won't see him and know that he has crossed the boundary and that he's reaped the consequences of his actions by, with his guilt and his shame and that he doesn't know what to do. Uh, do you remember in the story, if, if nakedness is symbolic of vulnerability and of guilt and of shame and all kinds of things in the story, what is it that Adam and Eve try to do to overcome that? you remember anybody? Somebody may have said it and I can't hear very well. They make fig leaves. you remember that? In order to... Uh, kind of over to cover the nakedness. Well, that didn't work very well. Uh, fig leaves shrivel up, and the, <laughs> sooner or later, <laughs> and the nakedness is exposed again. That is to say, your sense of vulnerability uh, is with you. But in the text, God overcomes the sense of vulnerability. How? God provides skin tunics to do what the shriveled up fig leaves could not do. And it is a way of saying that which has alienated us from ourselves and from God and from each other has been uh, made all right again by the activity of God, by a gracious act. And so in that Adam and Eve story, you, you can identify uh, what the boundary is. Don't eat that tree. 
You can identify uh, what the transgression is. They ate the tree, uh, the fruit from the tree. You can identify what the consequences are. We just talked about all of them. And you can identify the act of grace, that is, the skin tunics that in a sense covers uh, that which had alienated them from God and from, um, from themselves. Now, uh, let's, let's move to the next story in Genesis. That is the children of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. What would be the boundary? Do not kill. You know, that's kind of assumed in here. It's not stated in the story, but it's kind of assumed. In, and, you know, they knew the rest of the story by then. And they knew that uh, that was the boundary that you should not cross. Uh, do not kill each other. That's uh, the way we should live with one another. Do not kill. What does Cain do? Cain kills his brother Abel. That is to say, he crosses the boundary. He's a transgression. It, it'd be a, I hope you'll go back and restudy some of these because there would be a, a lot of things that you could uh, begin to try to unpack in these stories uh, about uh, Cain's jealousy. It, it's a curious thing in the Bible that uh, they are to bring... Um, uh, offerings to God, Cain and Abel, and each one uh, brings what they have. Uh, Cain uh, brings the produce, and Abel brings the animal, which kind of uh, uh, represents a bias toward animal sacrifice eventually. And the Bible says, curiously, uh, and God took note of Abel's offering, but not of Cain's. I just think that is such a powerful way of trying to understand uh, the, the ambiguities of life. Why is it that some people experience uh, good fortune and others not so much? Uh, we're not given an explanation for that. Just like in the Adam and Eve story, the talking snake, uh, you know, we don't, it doesn't try to explain where the talking snake, which you may represent as the source of uh, evil, comes from. No explanation of that. It's just kind of there. It's just a part of our existence. Uh, we don't understand it completely. In this story, uh, we don't know why uh, Abel's offering was acceptable to God and Cain's was not. What we do know in the story is uh, Cain's anger burned against his brother because of what he perceived to be an inequality or an injustice in life, even from God. What does that do to people when they get so angry about things? The, the other boundary that is crossed is, uh, you remember in the story, uh, Cain, when he's confronted by God, when he's done what he's done, and, and uh, God confronts Cain, and Cain says, What? Am I my brother's keeper? And the implied answer is, Yes, you are. And you have transgressed a boundary. Uh, so, the boundary, you are your brother's keeper. You shall not kill each other. The transgression, anger, resentment, jealousy, allows you to cross a boundary, a transgression. And remember what the punishment is for Cain in the story? 
you're to wander the earth. Where does he go, Steinbeck fans? East of Eden, that's right. He's to wander east of Eden, out of the promised land, back to Adam and Eve. Uh, they were cast out of the promised land. There's no more promised land, you know. There's no more Garden of Eden. And Cain now is to travel east of Eden. That's where he is to live. He lives in the real world. He lives with the consequences of his actions, if you will. And it scares him to death. And Cain, remember, says to God, well, if people see me, no explanation of other people in the story, by the way. It, it doesn't seem to matter. Uh, it's just one of those things that it doesn't matter in the story. It's just trying to tell you a theological uh, motif and not a, a history lesson of how people came to be. Uh, but Cain is concerned that he, when he wanders east of Eden, that people will kill him that he will receive what he gave. And it concerns him that that's what his life will be like and he will always be afraid. And that is the consequences of his actions. The act of grace in the story, some of you may remember, God said to Cain, they will not kill you. I will put a mark on your forehead and people will not take your life. So it's an act of grace. So again, in that story, Cain and Abel, you've got boundaries, you've got transgressions, uh, you've got consequences, and you've got an act of grace on the part of God. Now, uh, the story, third story is uh, more complex because it's the story of the flood. And uh, I, I really like this story because uh, it, it, what it acknowledges, and tell me if this is true or not, your observers of life, it acknowledges that transgressions go beyond individual acts. That what you or I do uh, that may be Im immoral or uh, unkind or whatever it might be begins to be multiplied in larger ways so that we see the results of uh, individual actions taking on a systemic significance whether it's in racism, uh, whether it's in war, whether it's in prejudice, whether it's in one people of one kind uh, being hostile toward another people of another kind, so that the individual kind of things that you and I do begin to have greater significance. And we see that in, in today's world, in the world in which we live. It's always been a part of the human experience. And the biblical material doesn't necessarily try to explain everything as much as it does really acknowledge that that's the case. So, in the story of the blood uh, of the flood, um, uh, God notices that curious word: the entire world has become corrupt, and uh, God cannot deal with that. So. Uh, the, the boundary is live peaceably with one another. Get along with each other in the world in which I have provided. The uh, transgression is corruption has, uh, in, in the Christian faith, we sometimes talk about a theological construct of total depravity. <laughs> That's a good word, isn't it? Total depravity. It means that human beings are not all evil, but everyone has some evil. 
That's what it means. Everyone has something about us that is uh, not loving, not kind, not generous. Uh, uh, Bill's sermon this morning from the, the wheat and the tares uh, is the, the, the wheat and the, the weeds uh, is that that's both, that's all of it. It's not that some people are wheat and some people are weeds, but there's a little bit of wheat and a little bit of weeds in, in all of us. And the world had gotten out of control. I don't know, that may sound familiar these days. The world is out of control. And so uh, the transgression is live in peace, be stewards of the earth, uh, live in harmony with each other. Uh, that's the boundary. The transgression is the world is totally corrupted. Uh, the consequence is, in the story, is that I'm just going to destroy everything. I'm going to start over. Uh, so uh, the flood comes and destroys everything that is, and that's the consequence of a totally corrupt world. And the act of grace is not everything is destroyed, <laughs> that Noah and his family are left to, to persevere, to carry on the creation of God. You know, what, a, what an opportunity beyond destruction to be given the responsibility of continuing the creation of God. So it's, again, you have, you have boundaries, you have transgressions, you have consequences, and you have an act of grace. The fourth story, in, um, the, which is in uh, chapter 11 of Genesis, is the Tower of Babel. Remember that story? The Tower of Babel. Human beings spread throughout the earth and become so enamored with themselves... <laughs> that their attempt is to take the place of God and to build a tower, symbolically, that would reach to heaven and for them to be, for human beings to be, in the place of God. All of this is theology now, not literal story. So uh, from the overall story, the boundary is God is creator, we are creatures, and we do not exchange roles. <laughs> Uh, and the crossing of the boundary, that uh, the transgression is to assume more uh, uh, knowledge for ourselves than is appropriate uh, in relationship to God. Uh, and so we build the tower. The consequences of that is the destruction of the tower. And you remember what happens in that story? There was one language throughout the earth signifying unity, signifying communications. We can get along. We can talk with each other. If you've ever been in a, in a different uh, country or setting and you didn't understand the language, how hard it is to communicate with someone if you don't speak the same language. Before the Tower of Babel, in the story, everybody spoke the same language, so to speak. That is to say there was a common understanding of how human beings live with each other. The consequence is, towers destroyed, a confusion of tongues. That is, no one is able to communicate with each other in a new setting, not in the same way as before. Now the act of grace, I kind of understand twofold in, uh, in, in that story. On the one hand, it is, uh, God uh, calls upon a people 
people of the the next thing that happens after chapter 11 is chapter 12 when you get to Abraham. So what follows the Tower of Babel is the call of Abraham. And Abraham's people, uh, and this is very interesting to me, when God wanted to give the responsibility of communicating something significant to humanity who had not learned to live with each other, hear this, he called upon a migratory people to do that. Uh, Abraham's ancestors were migrants. They moved from Mesopotamia. They moved to Turkey. They moved through Syria. They moved down into what is now Israel. And then they left Israel and moved to Egypt and lived in other places and finally came back into what is now Israel, the land of Canaan or Palestine. Uh, when God wanted to communicate something significant about how we should live after the debacle of the Tower of Babel and the confusion of languages, He chose a migratory people to do that and to be given the responsibility of helping humanity learn how to live with each other. Uh, it's a, a daunting task that Jews and now Christians uh, have uh, been given the responsibility to do that uh, in our world. I think it's a great way to understand the, the act of uh, grace, God not giving up on humanity by uh, giving that responsibility to Jews and eventually uh, to Christians to help us learn how to live with each other. And that indeed is our calling in life. And we sometimes as Christians say that uh, the final uh, act of grace or the act of restoration or renewal to the confusion of tongues at Babel was the day of Pentecost when everyone understood what was being said in their own language. Uh, I often think that we've gotten that wrong. It's not a miracle of tongues, it's a miracle of ears that everyone heard and understood. And so the correction to Babel is Pentecost finally, that is to say a common language a common understanding for all people. So those are the, the four stories in Genesis from which you formulate uh, your theology. Uh, and what those stories tell us are that there are boundaries in life, that human nature is such that we tend to be boundary crossers. That is, we are people of transgression. And that when we do, we suffer the consequences uh, you know, punishment, judgment, you use your word, I'm using consequences of our actions. And that the final story is about a God who is gracious, that that is part of the restoration, that is part of the renewal, and that becomes the foundational theology of uh, who we are uh, as a people, people of faith. So, uh, if you then begin to... Uh, if you then begin to apply that in life today, what does that look like in your personal life? Are there boundaries? Are you married? <laughs> uh, are there boundaries you shouldn't cross if you're married? And if you cross them, are there consequences? And how deep is the grace that it takes to restore a broken relationship? Are there boundaries in society uh, about not taking something that's not your own? 
and laws that exist and simply driving and observing red lights and green lights? Are there boundaries in life? Are there boundaries about your health that if you cross them, uh, there are consequences to be paid? Uh, and the act of grace is to restore uh, things back to uh, a livable state again. Are there boundaries not only in your personal life, but in the world at large? Are we a war-torn world? I, I thought about how do you apply this theological construct of a boundary, transgression, uh, a boundary, transgression, consequences, and grace to Vladimir Putin? How do you do that to a war that seems so unjust? And what of that reality in our world begins to kind of reshape some kind of theology that we can understand? Uh, I'll leave for you to work that out. <laughs> what about, a little bit controversial here, what about Donald Trump? I'm being serious. Uh, or any other politician. We could bring it to our state if we wanted to. Uh, any other politician. You know, what, what standards are we to live by? And what happens when those standards are crossed? And what are the consequences of putting razor wire in the Rio Grande River? And what act of grace is... Remember, God has chosen migratory people to teach us something about life. And what is the act of grace that enables us to begin to live together again? What are the consequences that must be faced according to the pattern uh, in our world together, in our common life, not only in the personally, I think you can understand the personal part of it. You drive too fast, you lose control, you have a wreck, you're injured, uh, you live with the consequences of that. But in a larger world, there are consequences and actions that also we're all living with. So I'll leave those uh, questions with you. And I want to, uh, to close today uh, with uh, a quote um, that is from a book by uh, John Meacham. John Meacham is a, pre a presidential historian. He's written several books. And his latest book is about uh, Abraham Lincoln. Everybody's written a book about Lincoln. Uh, his book is entitled, And There Was Light. John Meacham is an active uh, Episcopal layperson in his Episcopal church in, in I believe, Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, and this is what he says about the deepest experiences of Lincoln during that defining moment in our nation's history of a civil war where all these things I've talked about come to bear. We fight each other, we've made all kinds of transgressions, and we've, we're still living out the consequences of that, aren't we? Of slavery and war and segregation and all those things, still living that out. In the, in the process of living that out, Lincoln took advice from two clergy people. Lincoln says of himself, I wish I was more devout than I am. Have you ever said that? Lincoln didn't understand himself to be a devout person. But he understood a little bit about the complexities of life. And he took some, some guidance from Phineas Gurley, who was a Presbyterian minister in New York, when his son died. You remember he and Mary had a son that died of uh, typhoid, I think. Uh, and this is what the religious, this is what that person said. Uh, God's ways are not, not our ways. The believer must endure suffering 
confident that somehow and someday as promised in Scripture, the Lord will restore all things. And that was the, the best that he could find from a preacher of his time to tell him how to understand a tragedy in life. Uh, in good time, in ways that we don't all understand, God will restore uh, that which uh, has been broken. And he took advice from one other person, and that was Theodore Parker. Now, Theodore Parker was a Unitarian minister in Boston, and you will recognize the shortened version of what Parker said to Lincoln in his agony over the complexities of the Civil War. This is what he said. I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. There, the arc is a long one. My eye reaches but little ways. I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by the experience of sight. I can only divine it by conscience. And from what I see, I am sure it bends toward justice. Now that's what, theologi uh, that's what Theodore Parker said to Lincoln. You know the shortened version. Uh, the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. I think that comes from primarily from Martin Luther King. This is the original and longer version that came from Parker when he was trying to help Lincoln understand uh, the complexities of the Civil War and the decisions that he had to make. We're out of time. Um, so, uh, theological foundations of how you understand life, God, humanity, the interaction. Uh, there are boundaries. Uh, there are uh, proclivities to cross boundaries. There are consequences. And there is grace. The arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. God bless you.